Hey everybody, it is Friday, December 8th. You made it through another week. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. If you've been watching on YouTube the past couple of days, you may have noticed that my earphones have been broken. Well, new ones have arrived, Jill. I feel very fancy now <laughs> that both my ears can be covered. I had an accident with my previous pair, so R.I.P., but this is my Hanukkah gift to myself. On that note, Mosh, uh, happy Hanukkah to you and to everyone else who celebrates. Yes, it is an eight-day holiday for the Jews. Notably, by the way, Jill, wasn't really a big deal this holiday until about the 20th century. Uh, some of you might not know this, but the whole idea of gift giving on Hanukkah really is an American Jewish invention in the 20th century, sort of because like we're watching Christmas and I think kids were like, why don't we get gifts? And we're like, fine, we'll do gifts on Hanukkah. So just to let you know, it's a 2,000-year-old holiday that's all about basically a Jewish rebellion. After the Seleucids, they were a Macedonian empire, uh, defiled the Jewish temple with a statue of Zeus. The Jews rebelled, took the temple back. They found the candelabra. There wasn't enough oil to keep it going, at least they thought. Uh, but it would last eight nights, the oil that they thought would last for one night, a Hanukkah miracle until they were able to find more oil. So a little background for all of you. Since we don't have On This Day in History on Fridays, we're giving it to you up top today <laughs> for the holiday. All right. And with that, let's get to some news here, starting with politics. A day after the fourth GOP presidential debate, two more debates were added for January. We have a state of the race with five weeks until the Iowa caucus. Plus, what a second Trump term could look like. The Supreme Court said President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan is unconstitutional, but that is not stopping him from trying to chip away at student debt, what he's doing now. Hot strike fall continues, and now some workers in the news biz are walking off the job. Panera Bread's charged lemonade blamed for a second death will explain. McDonald's is opening a new chain, taking aim at Starbucks. And we've got person of the year, but how about flavor of the year? Or at least the flavor of next year, we'll explain. A lot of tasty news there, Jill. <laughs> Except for that charged lemonade. I think I'm going to avoid it. And it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. What we are watching, reading, and eating. Okay, let's start with politics. Just a day after the fourth and what we thought would be the final GOP presidential debate before the Iowa caucus, CNN announced that it will be hosting two Republican presidential primary debates in January. The first will be held in Des Moines, Iowa on January 10th. That's just a few days before the Iowa caucus. And the second will be in New Hampshire on January 21st. And that's just a couple of days before their primary. Wednesday night's debate had four candidates on stage, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. Moshe, as you mentioned on yesterday's podcast, no huge game changers from the debate, perhaps maybe the fall of Vivek Ramaswamy, who appears to just be disliked by the other candidates, if nothing else. Uh, but the question is still, can anybody realistically take on former President Trump, who leads in most national polls by double digits? He has skipped, as we know, the first four Republican primary debates. Unlikely he'll decide to join the next two. Now, for one of these other candidates to actually get the nomination, the anti-Trump Republicans would really have to rally around one candidate. And at this point, it's not looking like any of the current candidates are ready to drop out. So that anti-Trump Republican vote 
is split between a few different people. Yeah, and I would say there's actually three groups of Republican primary voters if you look at the analysis right now. There is the Trump people who want him definitely to be put back in office again. Then there's the anti-Trump people, probably I would say a third of Republicans. And then you have the sort of in-betweeners, which are like, I would prefer someone other than Trump, but I don't mind him necessarily. And none of these other people have really convinced me that we should put them in there as the nominee versus Trump. Regardless, you know, with Trump dominating about 40 to 50 percent of the vote, you really need one other alternative to dominate the rest of that group, right? The anti-Trumpers plus the eh Trumpers. What's interesting so far is that the candidates themselves are really just focused on one another, uh, save for Chris Christie, who is very focused on criticizing Trump. And you heard it in the debate. He got booed when he would criticize Trump from the audience there, which were Alabama Republicans. But they do give you a sense of where the core base of the Republican Party continues to be. And the fact that they really have circled the wagons around Trump this year as they feel that the various criminal indictments that he faces are unfair. So Politico did an interesting analysis of the first four debates of who's attacking whom and is Trump being attacked. And what they discovered on Wednesday night is that they attacked each other 28 times while targeting Trump just nine times. And that's rare because typically you go after the front runner, but the front runner in this case isn't showing up to the debates and frankly is so popular within the party that many of them are scared of being too aggressive towards Trump. And this has been the case now for four debates. In the first debate, apparently candidates only attacked him 10 times. In the last debate, just several months later, four debates in, they attacked him nine times. And most of those are Chris Christie, who's really left here as the only major Trump critic. You used to have Asa Hutchinson, used to have Mike Pence. Uh, both were much more critical of Trump uh, in the past. By the way, we talked about, you know, Chris Christie tried to make Donald Duck happen, uh, like a Donald is ducking the debates. In a previous debate, we were wondering what he would come up with this week. Turns out Voldemort was the one, the villain from Harry Potter. That's uh, he who shall not be named. That's how he referred to Trump. Basically, like the rest of these guys on stage won't address the fact that like they're pretending like we're running against each other when like the big kahuna who's leading us by 40 percent is not in this room. And we have to explain to voters why, you know, they should come over to our side, why they should reject Donald Trump. So the case you heard from Christie, by the way, at the end, if you got there for the last five minutes, was basically imagine next year that our nominee isn't legally allowed to vote because he's been criminally uh, convicted on one of his indictments. He got booed for it. But he's like, you can boo me all you want. But that is a realistic scenario, Republican voters, that like we could have a convicted felon as our nominee. And that's a reality check that Christie is trying to bring forth. It's the argument he's trying to bring. And DeSantis and Nikki Haley know that, like, you know, if they get as aggressive as Christie does, they might lose the eh vote, which are like they're eh Trump, but they don't want to hear you say too many negative things about him. So it really presents an interesting conundrum right now for the Republican field. As you mentioned, five weeks till Iowa, the voting begins. And I mentioned on yesterday's pod, they really have the next 60 days to figure this out. And by figure this out, I mean, one of them has to make a major move. A couple have to drop out. Otherwise, it's pretty sure thing at this point that Trump is the Republican nominee and that guarantees the rematch effectively between Biden and Trump. One person not worried about criticizing Donald Trump, Liz Cheney, the former congresswoman and someone who is or at least was considering a third party run. But she did tell CBS News that she is not going to do that if it helps former President Trump in the 2024 race for the White House. She told news publications this week that she was weighing a presidential run and would, quote, do whatever it takes to block Trump from getting back into office. 
She told CBS Mornings, though, quote, hopefully he won't win the Republican nomination. If he does, then all of us across party lines have to come together to defeat him next November. She has said that if Trump is elected again, that it will mean the end of the republic. And she has really expressed alarm at how comfortable her party has become with Trump and what she says are his lies. And Moshe is not the only one sounding the alarm about what a potential second Donald Trump term would look like. Yeah, there have been a whole bunch of stories in a number of publications, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic recently, on what a second Trump term might mean, what it would look like, uh, given his vows for revenge. You know, literally, he's said that on the stump. He has said to voters, I am your revenge, when, you know, he's really talking about his revenge, and his goal will be to work around the rules, the lessons he learned from the first four years, how he can basically put a bunch of temporary people in charge to get around Senate confirmations, a whole variety of things. They've been very open about their goals here. The Washington Post reported last month that Trump's associates are drafting plans to invoke what's called the Insurrection Act on his first day in office. That would allow him to deploy the military against any civil demonstrations, Trump has repeatedly said that he views the fact that he's being prosecuted as a license to turn the Justice Department and the FBI against all of his enemies. That includes Joe Biden, includes everybody else. And he's listed all of them by name. There are many of them. Interestingly, he was on Fox News this week with his friend Sean Hannity, a conservative commentator. And Hannity's like, okay, man, just clear it up. Like all these stories are saying you want to be a dictator. Please just let people know what is the truth. Take a listen to the exchange. I want to go back to this one issue, though, because the media has been focused on this and attacking you under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill, drill, drill. That's not not retribution. I'm going to be... I'm going to be... You know, he keeps... We love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border and we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. That that, that sounds to me like you're going back to the policies when you were president. What's interesting, Jill, clearly Hannity was trying to set him up to be like, that's ridiculous. The media is being ridiculous. Of course, I believe in the Constitution. He insists several times. He's like, no, I'll be a dictator on day one day one, I plan to be a dictator. And like, Handy has to follow up like, but you what you mean is X and Trump's like, No, what I mean is Y. Now, now we will say what Trump is describing are things that he tried on day one last time as far as immigration, etc. It just his comfort level with terminology like dictator. He clearly was not upset by that term. No, he wasn't trying to push back on it. And even Hannity was like, dude, like, you can totally get a sense that like, Handy in his mind was like, man, what are you doing? I'm trying to get you. I'm trying to set you up here to clear this up. And Trump's like, no, I'm going to, you know, like, I'm going to answer this. How I'm going to answer this. And that's on a fr- in a friendly exchange on Fox News. So what's interesting here, you've seen all these pieces come up recently. Uh, some of them are coming from allies of Trump. Then you've heard people inside the Trump circle have been pushing back on it. Then when given his own chance to push back on it, Trump, not so much. But expect to see more and more of this because we're even asked, Jill, on our uh, Instagram account, like, okay, why do you keep covering Trump so much? I'm like, because he is very much the likely Republican nominee and has a 50% shot of being president again. People are like, what do you mean? I'm like, have you not been paying attention? I think people are surprised to hear just because we're not used to former presidents coming back that, you know, he's very serious about this. And I think 
you know, you're going to get a lot of scrutiny on like, what will a second Biden term look like? What would a second Trump term look like? And there are a lot of obstacles that stood in the way of Trump and some of his plans the first time around. And what lessons has he learned? What do the people around him have learned about where there's little holes in the law? You know, you certainly saw that with January 6th, that they've tried to, you know, then fix the law as far as vote counting on Capitol Hill from the Electoral College. Where else have they found potential openings in the law where it's not necessarily foolproof, where, you know, Trump and his team see opportunities? So that's something you'll expect to see a lot of coverage of in the coming months. Good times, Mosh. Can't wait. Jill, listeners, we'll be with you holding your hand the entire (laughs) way. I think that people don't think it's serious because nobody wants this rematch. Right. The the Biden-Trump rematch. So everyone's like, it's not really going to happen, but it's happening. I mean, as of now, it's happening. No, you you will have a choice right now, everybody, because we tell it to you straight here. In all likelihood, you will be uh, seeing your ballot next November. It'll be Joe Biden. Donald Trump, one of them will be 81, about to be 82. One of them will be 78 years old. They both will have served one term. They both will legally, constitutionally, only have the ability to serve one more term. That's the situation. Now, these third-party bids, we'll see what the deal is there. But I think it's time to get out of denial about it. That's sort of where we're at right now as far as our choices are concerned. And I hear from people, too, who are like, well, what's the Republican Party going to do about Trump? Who are they going to decide should be there instead? I'm like, it's not the party. It's the voters. Like, it's a primary system we have here. Voters will be deciding who the other nominee is and whether they decide it's Trump, it's Trump, whether they decide it's somebody else, it's somebody else. Same thing on the Democratic side. You know, Dean Phillips is trying to get on the ballot. But for the most part, party elites there have rallied around Biden uh, to ensure there's no real competition on that side. We have a lot more news to get to, including today's speed read. Jill, I was asked recently on our premium Instagram account if I spoke foreign languages, and I you know, broke down some of the words that I knew, uh, but it has been one of my goals to really learn Spanish. I never learned Spanish. I learned French in high school, and I've been wanting to get in Spanish, given how relevant it is. And we are very excited to be partnering with our newest sponsor, Babbel. The best way to learn a language, of course, is through immersion, living where the language is spoken, But that's not possible for many of us. So what's second best? Well, Babbel. Because with Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in just three weeks. So I started Spanish lessons recently. I've been loving them so far. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a tutor or messing with some language apps, Babbel offers quick 10-minute lessons that are designed by over 150 language experts. And it really lets you learn relevant phrases that will actually be practical, something I definitely didn't get in high school. So it's designed for real conversations. So for you, would that be, where is the nearest ice cream shop? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Bring me to your gelato, your best gelato. (laughs) And what's great right now is they have a special limited deal for our listeners. If you're a Manu's listener, you have a 55% discount on Babbel, on a Babbel subscription. Head to Babbel.com, that is B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Again, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash Monu's. And with our discount, that is just $6 a month to learn a new language. Again, 55% off Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Monews. Rules and restrictions do apply. All right, now to our next sponsor, AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you know we have been drinking AG1 for months now here uh, at the Monews podcast. As a mom with two young kids, I can use all the help that I can get when it comes to my energy level and nutrition. And that's why AG1 is so important. It is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support 
Since 2010, AG1 has continuously refined their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. A team of doctors and scientists have tested it for 950 contaminants. It is NSF certified for sport, formulated based on the latest science and maintains high quality standards. And even our friends have started to drink AG1 and they're always saying how much more energetic they feel and and how much it has helped them. I take AG1 in the morning. I know I am covered for the day. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash monews. That is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S. Check it out. All right, time now for the speed read from the Associated Press. A Texas judge on Thursday gave a pregnant woman whose fetus has a fatal diagnosis permission to get an abortion. It was an unprecedented challenge over bans that more than a dozen states have enacted since last year. The lawsuit by Kate Cox, who is a 31-year-old mother of two from the Dallas area, is believed to be the first time since the Supreme Court decision last year that a woman has asked a court to approve an immediate abortion. The order only applies to Cox, and her attorneys afterwards spoke cautiously about any wider impacts, calling it unfeasible that scores of other women seeking abortions would also now turn to the courts. State District Judge Maya Gamble, an elected Democrat, granted a temporary restraining order allowing Cox to have an abortion under what are narrow exceptions to the Texas ban. Yeah, so the attorney general in the state, Ken Paxton, the Republican, his office argued that she did not meet the criteria for a medical exception. They issued a statement that doesn't quite say yet whether the state will appeal, but he has sent a letter to multiple hospitals saying there will be legal consequences if they provide Cox an abortion here. So there appears to be a standoff. Now, right now, she's 20 weeks pregnant. Doctors have told Cox that if the baby's heartbeat were to stop, inducing labor would carry the risk of a uterine rupture because of previous C-sections that she had, and that another C-section at full term would endanger her ability to carry another child. So she's sort of stuck on what to do, hence the request for an abortion medically based on what the doctors have been telling her. Now, she's been to three different ERs in the past month to be evaluated. She learned last week that her baby has trisomy 18, a fatal chromosomal condition, So now she has this permission to go ahead and get an abortion, despite the fact that Texas is one of a dozen states that has effectively banned it. Right now, this temporary restraining order lasts 14 days, so she has about two weeks here. But under the restrictions in Texas and those letters that came from the attorney general, doctors who provide abortions in Texas could face criminal charges that carry a punishment of up to life in prison. Though we should note the women themselves cannot be criminally charged for having an abortion in Texas. Numbers wise here, more than 40 women have received abortions in Texas since the ban took effect, according to state health figures, though none so far have resulted in any criminal charges. Just for perspective here, there were 16,000 abortions in Texas in the five months prior to the ban. So it has had a significant impact there. But um, very interesting case, Texas, there's been a number of legal cases related to the fact that the law doesn't provide enough in the way of medical exceptions. So there's a lot of doctors that are fearing uh, conducting the procedure even when the life and health of the mother is at stake. From the Wall Street Journal, hundreds of Washington Post employees walked off the job Thursday for a one-day strike, the culmination of long, simmering tensions between workers and management over pay, workplace policies, and planned job cuts. The publication's union said it expected more than 750 staffers, including newsroom employees, to join the strike. 
which it said was the first of this scale since the 1970s. The Post newsroom has about 1,000 employees. The union and management have been negotiating a new contract for a year and a half. The guild said that it is asking for pay increases of 4% for the next three years. And the company's latest offer was 2.25% next year with 2% increases in 2025 and 26. The union said despite a year and a half of efforts, Post management has refused to bargain in good faith for a fair contract that keeps up with inflation and our competition. The guild also asking for a guarantee to maintain its current hybrid work arrangement. So it didn't really impact coverage on Thursday, Jill, as I was monitoring their um, news stories throughout the day. The Washington Post itself is dealing, though, with declining subscriptions uh, following a surge they had during the Trump presidency and the start of the pandemic. And so that has led to some voluntary buyouts uh, to reduce headcount earlier this year. It has said it plans on doing layoffs if it doesn't meet the buyout goal. Jeff Bezos, uh, Amazon founder, who happens to also own the Washington Post, recently told the newsroom that he wants the Washington Post to return to profitability. And so that's key here. And by the way, the Washington Post is not alone here uh, as far as uh, striking workers. There was a similar strike at the New York Times last year. You have seen this unionization push across the country now really enter a number of uh, major media organizations. From Axios, the White House announced $4.8 billion in student loan debt relief for just over 80,000 people. That brings the total approved student debt cancellation by the Biden administration to $132 billion for more than 3.6 million Americans. A portion of this relief comes as part of the administration's effort to, quote, fix the public service loan forgiveness program, which wipes out the student loan balance of public service workers who have worked for 10 years and made 120 qualifying payments. And of the nearly $5 billion, another $2.2 billion is for nearly 46,000 borrowers through fixes to the income-driven repayment plan. Yeah, so what you've been seeing here since the Supreme Court blocked the larger Biden plan, uh, the plan to give student loan forgiveness to 40 million Americans, hundreds of billions of dollars, that the administration here has been taking a piecemeal approach, figuring out where they can do stuff legally in small amounts, maybe find some openings for themselves or programs that haven't been effectively used or people who have been overlooked. And so, as you mentioned, Jill, they've been able to give relief now to nearly 4 million Americans. Now, of course, the plan was for 40 million. They've gotten 4 million through so far through this plan B approach. Biden saying in a statement on Thursday, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision on our student debt relief plan, we are continuing to pursue an alternative path to deliver relief to as many borrowers as possible, as quickly as possible. They are very quick to tout that Biden has now given more relief to student loan borrowers than any other previous president. Student loan payments, by the way, after a couple years of uh, being paused during COVID, resumed on October 1st, uh, and interest began accruing again on loans earlier this fall. And that's something economists, analysts have been watching with a whole bunch of folks dealing with inflation, et cetera. Are they going to be able to make their payments? But Biden's trying to make good on this. It's a big deal uh, to younger voters. And that's a group that he needs to get out to vote next year. From NBC News, Panera Bread's highly caffeinated charged lemonade is now blamed for a second death. According to a new lawsuit, Dennis Brown of Florida drank three charged lemonades from a local Panera on October 9th and then suffered a fatal cardiac arrest on his way home. Brown was 46 years old and had medical issues and developmental issues. The lawsuit says that he lived independently, frequently stopping at Panera after his shifts at a supermarket. Because he had high blood pressure, he did not consume energy drinks. The lawsuit was filed on behalf of his family, and it comes less than two months after Panera was hit 
with a separate lawsuit regarding Sarah Katz, an Ivy League student with a heart condition. She died in September of 2022 after she drank a charged lemonade. That lawsuit called the beverage, quote, a dangerous energy drink and argued that Panera failed to appropriately warn consumers about its ingredients, which include the stimulant guarana extract. Panera has advertised its charged lemonade as plant based and clean with as much caffeine as our dark roast coffee. So the legal complaints here say that at nearly 400 milligrams of caffeine, a large 30 ounce charged lemonade has more caffeine in total than any of their coffees. In fact, at 400 milligrams of caffeine shell, that is about four to five coffees in one sitting, in one beverage. That's more than a can of Red Bull and Monster Energy drinks combined, plus the equivalent of 30 teaspoons of sugar. Now, the FDA says that healthy adults can safely consume 400 milligrams of caffeine a day. This is 400 milligrams of caffeine in one single beverage. So in the case you mentioned, Jill, of uh, Dennis Brown, who drank three of them, it's equivalent of between 12 to 15 coffees in one sitting. That is a lot, Mosh. Yeah, and he apparently had consumed some charged lemonades in the days leading up to his death as well. It's unclear whether he knew how much caffeine or other stimulants were in the drink, which at the time are in these self-serve dispensers offered side by side with all the store's non-caffeinated and less caffeinated drinks. Like, you know, you're just going over the lemonade next to the Diet Coke or so. Panera says it expresses its, quote, deepest sympathies for Mr. Brown's family and that it stands by the safety of its products. They say, based on our investigation, we believe this unfortunate passing was not caused by one of our company's products. But Panera, after the first lawsuit, has put more detailed disclosures in all of its restaurants and on its website warning customers to consume the charged lemonade in moderation and that it's not recommended for children, people sensitive to caffeine, or pregnant or nursing women. Jill, I think that people see lemonade and they don't think of it as like, you know, there's going to be five cups of coffee caffeine equivalent in this lemonade. I know we've gotten a lot of messages from our community surprised by it. Yeah, you would think maybe sugar, not necessarily caffeine. Well, beware, folks. From CBS News, McDonald's said that it's opening a new chain called Cosmics that will focus on coffee and other drinks, a step that is viewed as a challenge to Starbucks and Dunkin' as the fast food giant seeks to boost afternoon sales. The company said it will open its first Cosmics location in Illinois this month with plans to open additional restaurants in 2024. McDonald's CEO saying that the rationale for the restaurant stems from the growing demand for an afternoon beverage pick-me-up occasion, a $100 billion market where McDonald's currently is not a strong presence. The new chain will allow the company to create customized beverages that are difficult for McDonald's restaurants to create. He said Cosmic's concept is, quote, what would happen if a McDonald's character from the 1980s that was part alien, part surfer, part robot opened a restaurant in 2023? What? <laughs> Where did that premise come from? Who asked for that? It was a very caffeinated speed read today. So apparently on the Cosmic's menu... Which, again, if a part alien, part surfer, part robot opened a restaurant... In the 80s. In the 80s. No, a character from the 80s came to the future to open a restaurant. So sort of, you know, travel with Michael J. Fox in the DeLorean. The chain will include new customizable drinks and McDonald's favorites like the Egg McMuffin. Some of the coffee drinks that will be included, be offered here. A churro frappe, a s'mores cold brew, 
and a turmeric spice latte, according to the company. They're also going to sell non-coffee beverages, including a sour cherry energy burst, a blackberry mint green tea, and a popping pear slush. I feel like this is a fantasy world for like six-year-olds. <laughs> like when when you take them to like an ice cream shop or whatever, and they just like pick the like funkiest looking <laughs> right? flavor, and then they're like, "Whoa, yuck!" <laughs> Apparently, they're going to be offering customizations that include popping boba, flavor syrups, vitamin C shops. The first location will be in Bolingbrook, Illinois. I know Bolingbrook; it's a suburb of Chicago. Uh, Ten additional locations set to open in Texas, and then we don't know where Cosmics goes from there, Jill. As far as the eye can see, we'll see how this plays. We got to double check that quote. He really said that? Part alien, part surfer, part robot? Mosh, he really said it. <laughs> and if he didn't, who would even make that up? It's it's too crazy. Actually, I'm going to give <laughs> yeah. a hint that that should definitely be in our quiz for today. In, in the yes. news quiz over on the premium Instagram account, Chris Kempzinski, the CEO of McDonald's, apparently said it on an analyst call in July. All right, sticking with food from CNN, McCormick and Company, the top selling maker of seasonings and spices, has named tamarind as its 2024 flavor of the year. The report, released yearly since 2000, identifies trending spices and seasonings about to hit restaurant menus or in cookbooks and perhaps become the new pumpkin spice. Tamarind comes from a tree that commonly grows throughout Africa, Mexico, Asia, India, and produces pods containing the acidic and tangy sweet flavor that can be added to a number of foods like potato chips, ice cream, and even coffee. Choosing tamarind, Mosh, apparently a nine-month process using McCormick's team, which visits various countries from South Africa to China to Poland. They examine restaurant menus, they interview experts, and use data to see what's going on in these places. Yeah, it sounds like the fashion forecasting. It's the same way fashion brands head out there to try to figure out you know, what their new fall line will be a year from now, etc. Um, in fashion-forward places, I guess they do the same thing for flavors. I actually had a chance recently to try tamarind. Jill, we had a nurse helping to take care of Olivia the first few weeks. She's from the Philippines, and she's like, you guys got to try uh, tamarind. So she brought some fresh tamarind. The ones we had, the pods we had were a little tangy, but interesting. Tamarind was apparently chosen by McCormick because they say its flavor profile really speaks to a lot of the trends they're seeing out there. That includes a growth for tangy and sour foods, new modernized versions of regional foods, uh, what they call nostalgic foods that are over-the-top takes of childhood favorites. Think uh, mozzarella sticks with caviar. Jill, I'll, I'll let you know if uh, we'll start to incorporate it into our cooking. And when I say our cooking, I mean <laughs> Alex's cooking. She's the cook in our house. She is. I've gotten a few great recipes from her, actually. So I know she has her hands full with the baby now, but I will definitely be looking for some of Alex's recipes with tamarind. Yes, it's uh, taking care of the baby with a side of tamarind. All right, Mosh, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for what we are watching, reading, and eating. You want to kick it off? What are you watching? Yeah, so I was told that Family Switch is a fun little uh, film over on Netflix. It's Jennifer Garner, Ed Helms. I feel like these concepts were popular in the 90s. Basically, the whole family wakes up one day and finds out they've switched bodies. So if you're looking for something family-oriented on Netflix... Definitely check that out. Uh, there's also a documentary out called Compassionate Spy over on Apple and Amazon. This uh, documents the physicist Ted Hall. He was part of the Manhattan Project as the U.S. was creating nuclear weapons, but ended up becoming a spy for the Russians, passing significant information to them. So uh, checking that out as well. What are you watching? So, Moshe, as you know, I was sick last week. I was kind of stuck in bed for a few days 
And that did mean a lot of television. So I binged the entire morning show, the, the most recent season, which I thought was really, really good. Maybe my favorite yet. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'll check that out. I caught up on For All Mankind, which is released an episode a week, but I'm now caught up. I think it's a great season as well. I also caught up on some of my favorite housewives and I finally started The Bear, which I love and everybody has been saying is awesome and I really like it. So that is what I'm working through right now. Yeah, I'm a big Jeremy Allen White fan myself from his days on Shameless, though I am not caught up. So I'm looking forward to watching that as well. All right, Mosh, what are you reading? So uh, I just got sent by Dr. Aliza Pressman, The Five Principles of Parenting. She has a new book out uh, in January, but we got an early copy here. You can pre-order it. We have a link in the uh, show notes. Uh, she calls it The Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans. Jill, I'm now in the uh, business of reading books to make myself a better parent, and I'm going to start with this over the holidays. Moshe, I read a parenting book when my daughter was first born. It's called You Are an Effing Awesome Mom. And on one of the first pages, it said, don't worry about whether or not you're a good parent. You're reading a book on parenting. That means that you are already a good parent. <laughs> you, you're trying to get better at parenting. You're there. You, you got it covered. So good on you. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. I, I feel good about just even breaking out the book. Uh, we're hoping to have her on the podcast soon. What are you reading? Mosh, I read a great op-ed. It was in Newsday, my local paper, called Fight Anti-Semitism, Put a Menorah in Your Window. It's by Randy Marshall, who's one of the uh, reporters there. And she talks about how back in 1993, in this town in Montana, there was a slew of anti-Semitic incidents, and there was a Jewish family, and the dad said to the son around Hanukkah that they weren't going to put up Hanukkah decorations that year because they were really concerned about anti-Semitism that was going around. And that comment had made its way into the local newspaper. And soon, non-Jewish residents started to rally around the family by putting pictures of menorahs in their windows. And it all happened organically. It was before social media. And pastors spoke out, and the local newspaper published a picture of a menorah, and, and they called the slogan, Not in Our Town. And they say that about 10,000 residents in this 80,000-person community with fewer than 100 Jewish people actually placed menorahs in their windows. And she was saying, you know, all these years later, while anti-Semitism is at really, really dangerously high levels, that once again, Jews are scared. And we kind of need that message of solidarity. And it, it just kind of, it stayed with me. I, I thought that it was a really well done piece. I never knew that story. That's, that's, that's fascinating. Most, you're not the only historian on this podcast. There you go. On this day in history, Jill. Brought to you. We'll kick it over to you going forward. Okay, Mosh, what are you eating this weekend? Jill, one of the lucky parts of celebrating Hanukkah, it's literally a holiday where you're supposed to eat donuts, which is awesome. <laughs> As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you know, it was all about, it's a festival of lights. The oil lasted a while. So to honor it, a lot of traditional Jewish foods for the holiday all involve oil. They're all fried delicious. So we actually uh, have already gotten ourselves some donuts from Bread's Bakery. If you're familiar with it in New York City, it's delicious. So we've been having some of their holiday treats. Yourself? Mosh, I am hosting a very big Hanukkah party this weekend for my family. So not to copycat what you're saying, but we're talking latkes, Hanukkah gelt, the usual Hanukkah fare. A lot of fried food. That's right, Mosh. We are all about the fried foods and the chocolate. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. Have a wonderful holiday. We'll see you on Monday. 
Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.